Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to uh, be in John 21 probably most of the time. We'll, we'll go a couple places before we get there, but if you want to kind of go to the place where we'll spend most of our time this morning, you can go ahead and, and turn to John chapter uh, 21. Uh, we've been going through this series uh, called Unlocking the Secrets of the Christian Life, and we've been kind of looking at Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, and, and, and those talking about how uh, God has given us everything we need for the godly life, and its foundation is faith, and then we're furnishing our faith with all of these other things that are, that are in that passage, and so we're going to continue in that series uh, this morning. And, uh, but before we do that, I just want to take a moment, let's go before God and ask His Spirit to be at work in us as we hear His Word this morning. Dear God, we thank You so much that uh, we can stand with hearts abandoned because you are a faithful and good God. We can trust you. You are sovereign over all things, Lord. And we praise you. We worship you for that. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our minds, that we would understand uh, the text, understand your word for us well, but Lord, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts as well, that we would embrace this and what it means uh, for our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's been a, uh, a theory, I guess you would call it, a theory that has become prevalent in recent uh, years, and uh, especially in, in higher education, and, and it's kind of filtered its way down into all different parts of our society, and, uh, and we see it all the time. If you watch the news at night, you see it. If you, uh, in, even just in interactions, I see this theory of how people interact, how society interacts with each other at work. Uh, everywhere. The, the theory is called critical theory. And I don't know if you know what that is. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a term that describes a specific way of looking at the world that really is kind of its own worldview. And basically, this is what critical theory says. There's all kinds of things that can be said about it, and, and uh, I will not say them this morning. Um, but, but I'll try to give you kind of a good summary of, of what that is. Uh, critical theory is this idea that there's basically... There's basically two groups, and then there's all kinds of subgroups below these two groups. But, but critical theory is basically that there's, there's, there's two main groups in the world. There's, there's the oppressed, and there's the oppressors, right? There, there's those who are, are oppressed, who are victims of oppression, and then those who are perpetrators of oppression. And, and basically, everybody fits into one of these two groups. Sometimes, and as a matter of fact, fairly frequently, you have people that have have, uh, have both of these things, they, they, they call that intersectionality, and so it's kind of this idea that, that you, might, you might have uh, certain, things that, certain things that identify you with people groups that were oppressed, and then you might have certain things that identify you as, as, as part of those people groups that were the oppressors. And what happens is this, that people look at the world in this way, and we see this, I think, man, everywhere, but but we see it significantly in, in politics. We see it a lot in politics where, where everybody's kind of put in one of these two groups and then they're kind of pitted against each other. And it becomes this, this battle. As a matter of fact, I would argue that this theory and its prevalence and how it's worked, at, worked itself out in our society is one of the reasons that we see so much division and vitriol in our culture. But it's an entire worldview to see the world in this way and to kind of see like, oh, you're part of this group or you're part of that group. And all of a sudden, whether you individually have, have done any of those things or not really doesn't matter. That's the group that you belong to. 
And so it's, 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 a, it's a theory, critical theory, and, it, and it's really kind of filtered its way through all different parts of our society, through education, certainly in politics. But even at times, it's began to filter its way into discussions about theology and about who God is and about who we are as well. As many, as with many theories about how people interact, there's certainly elements of truth to it. But much of it is is wrong, or at least it's certainly contrary to what we find in Scripture. It's, it's contrary to what God tells us. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This, this text and, and many others tell us that as we view each other, as we look at one another, how we are supposed to see one another, it's not about what group we might be part of, except for that we are one in Jesus Christ. That we are brothers and that we are sisters. And this is an important, essential part of understanding what scripture has for us. I want to stop for a second because Peter's going to address something related to this uh, this morning, and, and he, he talks about it. And then we're going to read a story about Peter and Jesus in, in a minute. But I want to go back to the main text for this series and read it again, starting in verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where it says this. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, the thing that we're going to talk about this morning, mutual or brotherly affection. We are to add to our faith this mutual affection. Now, the, the term in Greek, Greek is, a, is a term that you might know. As a matter of fact, if you were reading the Greek and, and you knew how to pronounce all the different letters and you saw this word, you'd go, and you pronounce it, you'd go, I think I, think I know this word. Because the word is pronounced Philadelphia. Anybody know that one? Some of you guys, Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, you guys definitely know this, right? Pennsylvania, yeah, that's right. So, so that's the word. The word is, is Philadelphia, and it's actually a combination of two words. So Peter comes and he says, here's your faith, here's these, all these other things, and we've been talking about these things, these aspects of the Christian life that we're furnishing our faith with, and we get to this one, and this one is Philadelphia, and basically what it means is brotherly affection, and it's two words... Phileo is the word for love. And then, and then Adelphos, which is the word for brother or sibling or sister. And it, it, can, it can carry both. And so, and so it's, they're put together and it's, and it's brotherly affection. And so Peter's saying, hey, add this, furnish this, or furnish your faith with this, with this brotherly affection. And of course, we know that the, the motto the, uh, of Philadelphia is brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love. That's what it is. It's literally the actual Greek. So if you know a little bit of United States geography, you know a tiny bit of Greek. Congratulations. Well done. Well done. But what does it mean to furnish your faith with this brotherly love, with this brotherly affection? Well, Peter appeals to the Christians in Asia Minor as he writes, uh, second Peter, and he appeals them to show this, this brotherly affection toward one another. Now, here's the thing about Peter. And there's, I love this about Peter's. Peter has a habit of sticking his foot in his mouth. 
Right? Like, that's kind of Peter's personality. Like, he, he's, he's, I, I envision him someday, you know, I, when, when, I get, when we get to the new heavens and new earth, when I get to, I want to go find Peter and just hang out with him and just kind of, just kind of see if I'm right about how I perceive him, right? But I kind of I view him as this kind of boisterous guy. He's kind of loud. He says just what comes to mind. And sometimes he says what comes to mind and everybody around him's going, oh, Peter. I'm sure you know someone like that, right? They, they, there's like no filter. It just comes out and, oh, Peter, there you go again, right? Like that's, that's my vision of who Peter is. Well, Peter had experienced this brotherly affection in a really significant way and some interaction with Jesus. And so he knows well as he addresses the Christians in Asia Minor, he knows what he's speaking of because he had received this from Jesus in John chapter 21. We'll start in verse 15. And it says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death for which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now here's the interesting thing about this passage because next week we're going to talk about love. And so Peter goes, you know, in 2 Peter, Peter says, hey, add to your faith all of these things, right? And he gets to brotherly affection or brotherly love. And then the very next thing he's going to add is, is love. And we'll talk about that next week. And so you might go, wow, well, why does he list this twice? Isn't this the same thing? And he uses two very different words. And he's talking about two different kinds of, of, of things. And, and, and in this and, and in this passage, he's talking about, or today we're talking about brotherly affection. And there's a, it's a different kind of thing than universal, universal love. In other words, brotherly love is not universal love. This sermon is not going to be about, hey, love everyone. It's not going to be about that. This is a specific kind of affection towards one another. And a lot of people like to make hard distinctions between the different Greek words for love. There's four of them, and, and uh, C.S. Lewis even wrote a book on it called The Four Loves, and, and this love is this, and this love is this. The reality is that when we begin to look at Scripture, that oftentimes there's overlap, right? And so some of these words will be used, and they'll overlap each other. But there is sometimes where they carry on this very specific kind of meaning, and I think that is true of the text that we're looking at today. It's brotherly affection is not universal love. They're not the same thing. So when we get up and we say, I love everyone, we're not talking about brotherly affection. We're talking about a more universal love. We're talking about agape kind of love, a different kind of love. A brotherly affection is not that. 
Peter knew this brotherly affection because he was close to Jesus and he had a familial kind of relationship with Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a love everyone kind of thing. It was, a, it was a specific kind of relationship that he had with Jesus that allowed him to receive this from Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse, verse 46, it says this. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus at one point was teaching people and and his actual family was there with him. And they were wanting to talk to him, but they were on the outside. And, and he basically came and said, no, 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 my brothers and sisters, it's not them, it's the disciples. He points to his disciples. He says, this is, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. This is my family. And Peter is, a, of course, among those disciples. He had a familial kind of relationship with Jesus. He was close to Jesus. And he had experienced this brotherly kind of love towards Peter because they're relationship was a familial one. For many people, the idea of family is difficult. Many people have a background that's difficult. You begin to talk about about a closeness with your brother or with your sister or with your mom or your dad or or those kinds of things. And, 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 And sometimes people who have had a difficult background with their family will look and go, I don't know what that's like. I mean, I hear people talk about it, but I don't know, I don't know what it's like to be close. I don't, I don't know what it's like to have that familial kind of relationship. What is it like to have a brother who you're tight with, who you can tell everything to, who, who will be there no matter what? And a lot of us will look back, well, I don't know what that's like. Maybe some of you are really blessed and you have wonderful families and you do know what that's like. You have a relationship with a brother or sister or mom or dad and you are close and you can, you can kind of understand that familial kind of love, that familial kind of affection that you can show one another that is different and unique. But some of us do not. But here's the reality that God invites you into his family. He says, come be my children. Be one another's brother. Be one another's sister. Come into the, to, to, to the family of God. And, and the psalm just says, it's a father to the fatherless. And, 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 and throughout the New Testament, there's all kinds of language about, about family, about being sons and daughters of God, about, about being adopted into the family and brought into the family. And so no matter what your background is with your blood family, God invites you into his family. As a matter of fact, that's what the church is. It's a family. To be part of Grace Fellowship is to be part of a family, part of the family. To be part of the church at large is to be part of the family of God. But I got to tell you, there's no family that's perfect this side of eternity. So whether, whether it's your background and you look at your family and what you grew up with, you go, man, my family's not perfect. And oh boy, it's far from, it's not, I'm not sure my family's even good. Some of you might say that. Or I'm sure, sure some of you might say, I'm sure my family's not good. May even go, go that far. And God invites you into his family, and as far as his part of things are perfect, but we come into it as fallen people, and because of that, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we bring all kinds of things with us, don't we? 
You know, one of my favorite lines when I do weddings, and I, do, and I use, a, a, use a, similar, a, a line similar to this recently when I did a wedding, and, 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 and I stand there, and, I, you know, the bride has come up, and she's in this beautiful gown, and she looks gorgeous, and, and, uh, and, and the guy is actually the bride's over here. The groom's, oh, sorry, my hand, I got to get my hand gestures right. This is the bride over here, and the groom's over here, right? And he looks halfway decent, considering, you know, and, but she's beautiful and all these things. And there comes a point in the, in, in the ceremony, and I get to talk to the bride and the groom a little bit. And a lot of times, I'll just look at them, and I'll say, well, there's only two problems with this marriage. And I'll go, you and you. And usually, I get a laugh, and when I don't, I get concerned, <laughs> And usually I'll get, a, I'll get a little bit of a laugh and, 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 I'll, and I'll often look at it and go, look, let's just be honest. And I'll usually look at the groom and I go, and I'll say, you're nowhere near perfect, buddy. <laughs> She's closer. You know, but you both bring these things into the relationship. Right? There's a fallenness, there's a sin nature that, that comes with us into whatever relationship we enter into. Someday that will be taken away and we'll be with God forever. And at that point, that, that sin, uh, that fallenness will no longer follow us and we won't bring that with us. But for now, that's part of, the, of, of our existence, part of, of our fallenness in this world. And so we bring those things into the relationship. Well, I don't know if you recognize this or if you realize this, but if you start, if you become part of the church, guess what you bring with you? Just somebody, come on, it's Okay. Baggage, you bring sin, you bring fault. Some of you are like, well, not me. I mean, maybe that person over there, like, you know. So I, I saw some of the wives in the room were doing the, you know, trying to get the guy to respond, right? The reality is you don't have to be shy about it because it's all true of all of us. Everybody, we bring sin, we bring those that fallenness into the church with us. When you, when you came to grace this morning, guess what you brought with you? Fallenness and sin. Now here's the thing. We're not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. And if you find one, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Okay? That's how families are. That's how we are as a family. We bring those things with us. But I will tell you this, that as we look forward to that time when we will be with Jesus forever, as we look forward to that new heavens and that new earth, as we look forward to that, that time when we will, we will receive that, that glorified body where there will be no more fallenness that falls, follows us around, that, that sin will, will have been completely, not only as it hasn't been taken care of on the cross, but that will come to fruition. It won't be part of our fallen nature because we won't have a fallen nature anymore. All we will carry with us is the image of God that God gave us, and we will walk in his presence, and we will be in his presence, and those things will not be there any longer. And I look forward to that day, and we work towards that day last week we talked about holiness and godliness and and working towards that and as we work towards that in this life the reason we need to be part of the church the reason we need to be part of a people that seek after god is because we grow in community that's one of our core values here at Grace, we grow in community. We grow together. We need each other. Iron sharpens iron, as the, as the proverb says. And, and, and Hebrews tells us, don't forsake meeting together. Be together. We grow in community. We grow together. And here at Grace, we do that through life groups, through Sunday morning, of course, through serving together. We grow in community. 
That is part of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. In addition to that, brotherly affection is about restoration. Brotherly affection is about restoration. I know it sounds like I'm being sexist this morning, right? I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm saying brotherly and all that kind of thing. And, and I, I just couldn't figure out how to say it better and it'd be more inclusive. So you'll forgive me. But so just whenever it says brotherly, just know that I'm, I'm talking about the, the sisters and the brothers and I'm talking about them both, all right? You're all included. Nobody's excluded here, okay? Brotherly affection is about restoration. Imagine the scene here with, with Peter, right? He had gone to the cross. He had, he had died. He had shed his blood. He had gone to the grave and he had risen from the dead. And now he's appearing to the disciples. He's appearing to all these people, right? And he's sitting with Peter. And the, and the context is a familiar one. And he's sitting with Peter. And, and the text that we read in John chapter 21 says that after they ate breakfast, they begin to have this conversation. And Jesus asked him three times the same questions. The same question, Peter, do you love me? Now, what's interesting is this, the first two times that Peter asked the question, he uses the, he uses the verb agapao. It's agape, right? But it's the verb. Agape is the noun. Agapao is the, is the verb, right? And that's kind of the, the word for, that's the word for love he uses. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Both times, Peter answers back with phileo, with brotherly love. Yes, Jesus, you know that I phileo you. I love you both times. And then the third time, Jesus changes the language and he asks again, but this time he says, hey, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you, do you, do you love me as a brother? And Peter, again, hurt and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, upset maybe even. He, 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 goes, he goes, Jesus, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. What's happening in this text? Why does Jesus do this? You might remember what happened when Jesus was on his way to the cross. You might, remember, you might remember that Jesus told Peter, he says, look, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, 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 not me. I will never deny you, Lord. And yet, as, as, as Jesus was brought in to, 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 to answer to the high priest and to answer questions, to be interrogated, if you will, he's, he's going through the process. He's on his way to the cross, and Peter is following behind, and he can't go in. And, and he gathers around a fire outside outside of where Jesus was being questioned, and he's sitting there, and he, and he gets asked first by a young girl, and, he, and, and the young girl says, hey, aren't you one of, one of his disciples? He, and he says, no, 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 I'm not. That's not me. And then, and then still around the fire a little bit later, he gets asked again, and he denies Jesus three times. And then, as you know, the text, the rooster crows, and Peter realizes that what Jesus said was true, and he had denied Jesus three times. And yet, Jesus goes to the cross, he sheds his blood, and he comes back. And in this context, you can almost imagine him sitting around the fire as they cook breakfast. And the smell of the fire, the campfire, begins to enter into Peter's senses. And Jesus begins to ask these questions. How quickly Peter would have gone, oh, I know where Jesus is taking especially after that second question. If you didn't figure it out by then, certainly when Jesus asked the third time, do you phileo me? Do you, do you love me as a brother? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then he's hurt. And sometimes we might read that passage. And go, Why did Jesus have to do that? Why did Jesus have to bring up in this kind of 
veiled way, a little bit veiled, but certainly obvious enough for, for Peter to recognize. And if there were others around, they would have probably understood what was going on as well. And they would have seen that Jesus was bringing Peter back to that spot where Peter was recognizing, yes, I denied you, Jesus. Why do you have to bring it up? Why do you have to talk about my past sins, my past failures? Why do we have to go there? And I think that sometimes we feel like God does that to us. Like we are reminded of the things in our past. But the reason that Jesus brings him back to those things is not so that he can make Peter feel guilty. It isn't so that he can, he can, he can make him feel ashamed. It, P, Jesus isn't trying to rub it in. He's not saying, I told you, Peter, and I was right. He's not vindictive. He's not doing those things. He's bringing Peter back to those moments so that he can restore Peter's heart and his soul. Here's the reality. Unless we understand and recognize our own need for restoration, restoration isn't available to us. So Jesus brings him back there, not to shame him, not to embarrass him, not for any of those things, but he brings him back there just for a moment so that he can say, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, on that third time, he says, yes, Jesus, you know I follow you. You know I love you. You know all things. And he says, feed my sheep. And what would Peter go on to do? He would be the cornerstone of the church. He was restoring him for the purpose of the kingdom and for the purpose of ministry. See, brotherly affection is about restoration. I'll tell you a story. The Washington Post reported in 2018. There was a young boy. He was two years old. His name was Leo, Leo Belknap. And Leo uh, was a helpful kind of kid at two years old. You know, two-year-olds, they're, they're kind of fun. They want to help mom and dad and those kinds of things. And, and mom and dad were... Um, I think it was Utah State or Utah University, one of the Utah bigger schools. They were big fans uh, and of the football team, and they liked to go to the football games. And, and, uh, and they were given season tickets one year by one of their parents. And uh, um, Leo's mom and dad were given tickets, and so they could go to the games. And, and they were saving up so that they could pay uh, their parents back for the, for the season tickets. And so they had an envelope, and they would you know, put a little bit of money in there anytime they had a little extra and they were trying to save up. And they had saved up $1,096 they had put into this envelope. And it came time to pay it back. And, and, uh, and so they, they, had, they, had, they had the envelope and, and Leo's mom and dad, mom goes to get it and she goes, I can't find the envelope. And she tells Leo's dad and, 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 and they start to look. And, and you, know how, you know how it is, you lose something, if you've lost something valuable, this isn't losing your keys. How many of you freak out when you lose your keys? Like, right? Like, this is, this is not just losing your keys. Like, you know, you'll get over that. This is $1,096. Now, maybe that's not much to you, but that's a lot of money where I come from. Right? Like, that's a lot of money. And they can't find the envelope. They can't find it. So they look in all the normal places. You know how it goes? It progresses, right? First, you look in the obvious places. And then you look three more times, right? And then when you're done with looking those three more times and you, you're starting to go, okay, well, it's not in the obvious places, so it's got to be someplace that's not obvious. 
And so you start to look in the not obvious place. You're, tra- you're tra- retracing your steps, and, and you know, dad's over here in this room, and mom's over here in this room, and they're looking in whatever their regular hiding places or, or whatever were, and they can't find it, and they're, they're starting to panic, and hours go by, and, 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 and they're, where is the money? You know, quoting that line from Jerry Maguire, right? Well, show me the money. I can't find the money. And so there's, they can't find it. They're kind of freaking out, and this is not car keys freaking out. This is way more than car keys are lost freaking out and they are freaking out and they're freaking out and they're freaking out and they're looking everywhere and they're looking behind everything and under everything and everything and finally um leo's mom from from the uh, from the office goes i found it and you can imagine leo's dad heart just goes you know that relief that, oh, oh man we found the 1096 dollars because it's cash right There's, what do you do and so and so he comes running into the office and she goes but there's a problem found it in the shredder. See, Leo was a helpful child. And Leo had been helping his mom shred old paperwork and probably thought he was being helpful and put the envelope with the $1,096 in it through the shredder. Now, I got to be honest with you, I'm going to question the mom's judgment in teaching a two-year-old how to use a shredder. But that aside from everything, okay, (laughs) Maybe there are safeties on it. I don't know. She, he, put, he put the money in the shredder. And you look at it. Oh, no. He lost that money. But here's the thing. I don't, I don't know if you know this. This was, this was new to me as I read the story. But apparently the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. How many of you knew that there was a Bureau of, of Engraving? Okay, more of you. You're all smarter than me. I didn't know that. There is a, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing has a, 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 listen to this, mutilated currency division. How many of you knew that, that existed? Anybody? Did you all mutilate some money? Yeah, a couple of you are like, yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently, you can take this money, this, this, this cash that had gone through the shredder, right? You can take that to this division, and they'll restore it for you. And I, I, I don't think they tape it together. I, I think they just give you new ones, right? They figure out what it is, and they give you, they give you new ones, right? I'm, I'm sure they don't tape it together. But the idea is the same, right? They restore the value. You get back that value. That's kind of what brotherly affection does. Brotherly affection comes alongside the broken and the hurt and and, and puts their arm around each other. We put our arm around each other. We walk with each other. That's brotherly affection. It's not about the bad thing you've done. It's not about the sin nature that you carry with you. It's not about your imperfection. It's about restoration. That's brotherly affection. That's the work that we're supposed to be doing, that we're furnishing our faith with. Friendship within the church is so important, you guys. It's so important. As friends, we come alongside each other. As brothers, as sisters, we come alongside each other for the sake of restoration. There is no perfect church, and there are no perfect people in a perfect church, at least not this side of eternity. When you come into a church, everybody carries with them brokenness. Everybody. I'm going to ask you to do something really uncomfortable. Look around the room. Look at everybody in the room. Look around. around. They're all broken. 
Everybody you just looked at, they're all broken. Every one of them, I'm broken, you're broken, we're broken. We come alongside each other with brotherly affection to walk with each other, to lift each other up, to restore one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's the work of the church. That's what we're here for. So if you come into this room this morning and you're thinking, I'm too broken for the church, can I just tell you, you are perfectly broken for the church. Perfectly broken for the church. It's true in the church. It's true in our life groups. That's why we have life groups, because we need those closer relationships, those people that know things about us and love us still. We need it in our marriages. We need it in our marriages. Wives forgiving husbands and lifting them up. Husbands forgiving wives and lifting them up. We need those kinds of relationships in our marriages so that when there is fallenness that works its way into our marriage, that works its way into our relationship where there's conflict, where there's sin, where there's whatever, that we look at each other, we forgive one another, we put our arms around each other and we hug and we, and we lift one another up and we say, I love you. I love you my wife. I love you, my husband. We seek restoration in our marriages, not condemnation. That's the kind of love that Jesus showed Peter. And it's the kind of brotherly affection we are to furnish our faith with so that our Christian walk might be effective, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1. That our Christian life might be effective. Let me sum it up this way. The love of Jesus is the love of a brother. The love of a brother is a love that restores the fallen. The love of Jesus is the love of a brother. The love of a brother is the love that restores the fallen. See, here's the reality. We don't come and see people as you're the oppressed and you're the oppressor. You know how we see people? You're a child of God. Or you need to know Jesus but we all come fallen before God, everybody. Nobody's perfect. We all come fallen before God. We don't divide people so that we can pit them against one another. We cross those lines that others in our society won't cross. We cross ethnic lines. We cross socioeconomic lines. We cross political lines. We cross whatever. We go wherever there are people because they're all created in the image of God and we love them with the love of God. There, are, there is no dividing so that we can pit one another against each other. That's the way of the world. The way of Jesus is to love all people created in the image of God. And guess who, which people those are? Now, I'm sure you know what's going on in China. I think the last numbers I saw, I'm sure it's over this now, but something around 1,700 people have died because of the coronavirus. I don't even know how many thousands upon thousands that, are, that have been infected with the coronavirus. I mean, China's basically a quarantined country at this point. You know, nobody's let any, letting basically anybody go in and out of China. And here's what's amazing about, about what's happening there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's scary and it's horrible and all of those things. But if there is a silver lining, it is this. You ready? The church in China is running towards the problem. The church in China is running towards the problem. 
Now, I don't know if you know about what's, you know, to be part of the church in China, to be a Christian in China, that's dangerous business, right? Like most of the churches are underground, and the ones that aren't underground, uh, those, those churches are controlled by the government. And so most of the churches operate kind of underground. They, they don't really tell China about it. They're all operating underground. And so now there's this, this coronavirus, and people are, are getting sick, and people are dying, and, and, and we, nobody really knows how bad it is because we're not even sure that we can trust what China tells us. And, you know, and, and these are just the confirmed deaths and the con- confirmed uh, infections and whatever. And so, and so everybody's freaking out, and rightly so. But the church in China is running towards the problem. I love this about the church. And if you look at history, this is what you see. The church in China is going around and they're, and they're handing out masks so people can have masks. They're handing out whatever medical supplies they can get their hands on. They're going out in the streets. They're not just handing those out, but along with those, they're handing them literature about Jesus. They're literally going out on the streets and preaching the good news of Jesus. In China, you don't get to do that. And they're doing it anyways. They're risking their lives. They're going out on the streets. They're running towards the, prob- the problem. Because those in, in a different sense, maybe not in a spiritual sense, although hopefully they'll become that in a spiritual sense, but they're still looking at their, their, their brothers and sisters, their Chinese brothers and sisters, and they're saying, we want to love you with this brotherly affection. So they're running towards the problem. They're bringing mass and all these different kinds of things into the streets with the gospel of Jesus so that people can know and become part of God's family. And they're risking their lives to do it. And the church has done this over the centuries. And here's why I bring this up. One, I do think it is, at least in some sense, a brotherly affection that the Chinese are showing each other. But there's another reason I bring it up. Well, we might not be able to go to China ourselves. We might not be able to to buy a ticket and... I don't, know, I don't even know what that would be like right now, <laughs> trying to buy a ticket to go to China somewhere. We might not be able to do that, but there are ministries that have connections that are working in China, including Partners International, which Suzanne uh, Wilson works with. And I just want to give you guys a heads up. What we're going to do is we're going to set up this week a way for Grace Fellowship to give through Partners International, to, through the connections they have, so that the church in China can be effective in reaching the people of China so that they can run into the fire, so to speak, while everybody else is trying to run out. Because that's what the church does, because we know that this world is not all that there is. We have hope for another world, amen? So be aware, watch our communications. We'll let you know how that's all gonna work. But I want you to know this week we're, set, we're gonna set that up. And certainly by next Sunday, you guys will have a, a, an opportunity to give towards Partners International and help provide transportation of the medical supplies that they are bringing to China so that the Chinese church can be more effective in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and helping their brothers and sisters, okay? All right, let's pray. Do you got it? Thank you so much.